Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. And let's humble our hearts once more as we get ready to dive into the text that Devin just read for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mercy. And on days like this where uh, we look outside and see snow and ice, um, we are reminded at pictures you've given us of our redemption, that though our sins were as scarlet, you have made them white as snow. And so Lord, today as we look at a text that deals with obedience and faithfulness and righteousness, Lord, we pray that the uh, blinding white that we see in our world today reminds us of a God who is holy and pure. Lord, we pray that we heed the warnings in Proverbs 11 of pride, which leads to destruction. Instead, we find humility, which gives us wisdom. Humility that comes simply by sitting under your word, that we are people who need to be spoken to by God himself. And so, Lord, we thank you for this privilege. We thank you for this body. Praise in your name. Amen. So uh, you can open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Proverbs chapter 11. And this passage deals with a theme initially uh, that many of you might have experienced in your own life. I wonder how many of you have been scammed at any point in time. And if you've ever been scammed or tricked or bamboozled, whatever it is, uh, you realize how indignant you can become, how angry you can become. In fact, our community group this week, one of the guys in my community group, in his own words, was, quote, digitally punked this week, where he ordered something online and it was attached to a false shipment ID of a package he's never going to get, yet his money is already gone. And actually, if you look at the beginning of our passage today, Proverbs 11, verses 1 through 3, we see this theme. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. When pride comes, then disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. And so right off the bat, hidden in what he's talking about with false balances and just weights, Solomon is talking about scams. He's talking about those who deal in deceitful business practices. And I don't know if you guys noticed this, um, but when you go fill up at a gas station and you're standing there in freezing temperatures with nothing better to do, you're reading what's on the, the gas thing. And it's got this little badge on it that says inspected by the State Department of Weights and Measures. And what that means is when you fill up your car with a gallon of gas, this department comes and makes sure that you're actually getting a full gallon. Because unless you bring your own scale with you, you're taking the gas station's word that when you buy a gallon of gas, you're actually getting a gallon of gas, not three-quarter gallon or half a gallon. These checks and balances exist to protect the consumer from people who are trying to do what Solomon is talking about here, to have false balances and unjust scales. And this practice of integrity in the workplace is actually something that God demanded of his people prior to Proverbs. In fact, when you look at the giving of the law, we encountered this, those of you who are in our Bible reading plan, um, in Leviticus 19 this week, didn't we? Where at the end of Leviticus 19, God says to his people, he said, you shall not have any unjust measurement in terms of weight, length, or quantity. You must be true with your scales. And now here's the thing. I bet just about every person in here who has had money to spend has been scammed at some point. Something's been skimmed from you. You haven't received exactly what you paid or you've been the plot of something that's even more devious. And yet here you are no worse off for the wear because you don't know about it. But what happens when you become aware that you've been wronged like this? Is there anything in your life that makes you more hot than that? that immediately strikes in you this desire for justice and vindication and restoration, we become angry at this. And we're livid because it's unjust. And this is not just a Christian experience. 
This is a cultural experience, isn't it? This is what drives our demands for checks and balances, not just in business, but in politics. This is the undercurrent of what drives us to care about justice or extortion or things where people are not treated fairly. We know the abomination, is the word Solomon is using in this text, the abomination of a false balance, of a prideful arrogance, and of crooked treachery. But what Solomon shows us is that behind this injustice, if we're looking at these three verses, are some other themes. There's themes of integrity and uprightness. And a greater biblical theme that's going to take up much of chapter 11 is actually the biblical theme of righteousness. All of our cultural outrage, our cultural desire, our internal emotions towards justice are actually touch points on what the Bible calls righteousness. A false scale is not just unjust, it is unrighteous. It is not righteous. It is not true. It is not pure. And did you notice, despite how we know how we feel when we are prey to an unjust scheme, this text didn't actually begin with our emotions, did it? It started with God's emotions. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. He abhors it. That's a word that is so deep, we don't even know how to describe it. If I asked you to define abhor it, we just know it's bad. He doesn't like it. More so, a just weight is the Lord's delight. It pleases God in his very soul to see righteous scales. Now, here's the thing that, that uh, I talked about earlier. None of us can see all of the ways in which we or others around us have been taken advantage of by unjust people. But here, in Proverbs 11, chapter 1, is the God who sees all things. And every time there is injustice or an unrighteous transaction in this world, every time someone is extorted wrongly or for false gain, God abhors it. It is wicked to him. And on the flip side, every time you pay exactly what is owed or give to your customer exactly what is promised, God is delighted. He is satisfied. He is pleased in a, in a world that is passionate about justice and righteousness, God is more concerned about all of that than we are. God has stronger emotions regarding righteousness and justice and equity and integrity than we do. And Proverbs here does something beautiful. I hope you're coming to love this book as we're in it because I love it more than I did 15 weeks ago, and it's fun to take this journey with someone other than myself. And so we're here, and, and what Proverbs does is, here we see verse one, God cares about just weights. God hates unrighteous, unjust, and deceitful scales. Now, if you're not a believer in here today, if you're watching online wondering what this is, we generally, there are lots of things about the God of the Bible that you might cringe at. This is not one of them. We applaud a God who looks at what is wrong, what is uh, extorting people, what is unjust and unrighteous in this sense, and we applaud it. We say, this is a good God who stands on the side of integrity and of truth. And yet, as Solomon goes on, even in the first three verses, he begins not talking about righteous and just scales, but righteous and just hearts. Look at where this proverb goes in verses 3 through 8. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, 
and the expectation of wealth perishes too. The righteous is delivered from trouble and the wicked walks into it instead. And so here in verse three, we encounter this word crookedness. It's translated as crookedness in your text. There's only two places in all of the Hebrew Old Testament where this word is used. And the sense behind this word is that of crookedness in terms of being deceitful. There's this duplicity this two-facedness behind this word. And there's this contrast you see now in verse three where it shows the wise or the upright are of singular integrity. They have solidarity on what is true. There is no deceit or unfaithfulness found in them, but the wicked are deceitful, duplicitous, and two-faced in all of their life. And now we see what Solomon's doing because he's got us. What he's done is he shows God's own affection, God's heart posture towards impersonal scales and balances. And then goes on to say, if God cares about righteous scales, how much more does he care about righteous hearts? If God is that emotional towards a piece of metal with a weight tied on the end, how much more emotional is he about the hearts of those whom he has created? Six times in eight verses today, Solomon uses words related to uprightness or righteousness. Contrasted with seven times, he uses words like crooked, treacherous, or wicked. In other words, if we love to cheer the God who hates false scales and delights in just weights, we also need to come to grips with the God who loathes unrighteous hearts but delights in those who are righteous. And here's the beauty of our passage today. It starts with God's delight in righteousness, but actually ends in the Christian's delight in righteousness. In other words, wrapped up in this God who loves righteousness are some of the more practical ideas you will ever apply in the book of Proverbs. When we come to Proverbs, we want something that we could take and we could apply and we could do right away. It is here. We find this immensely practical principle, yet behind it, is also some of the most, most deeply comforting truths for the Christian heart. It's just a long introduction to say this is what we're going to see today. We're going to see that walking in righteousness pleases God and satisfies the Christian. Walking in righteousness pleases God and satisfies the Christian. And we're going to look at this in two ways. First, we're going to put ourselves to the task of understanding righteousness. We talk about this word a lot. We should know what it means. But then secondly... We're going to see what it looks like to trust in righteousness. We're going to look at trusting in righteousness. And so the first thing we want to do is define righteousness as we look at it. So this is our first point, understanding righteousness. Righteousness is a big word. It's a word that perhaps if you're unfamiliar with Christianity, you say, that's too lofty for me to understand. I don't need to understand. It sounds religious. It sounds spiritual. It sounds stodgy. So we ignore it or if you've been around the Christian culture for a long time, righteousness is one of those words we see a lot in scripture. We perhaps sing about it a lot in song and it becomes white noise. We have some category for what righteousness is because we talk about it, but do we really know how to define righteousness? In fact, I think for the majority of my Christian life, I didn't care what righteousness actually meant. I didn't draw any comfort from it. But here in this text, we're going to see immense comfort in it. In fact, John Calvin, who wrote thousands and thousands and thousands of pages on the Christian faith, summarized the entirety of the Christian life in two parts. He says this, The first is that a love of righteousness, to which we are not naturally prone, must be implanted and poured into our hearts. The second is that we need some model that will keep us from losing our way in the pursuit of righteousness. So not only is righteousness a key to understanding the book of Proverbs, where the Hebrew word comes up almost a hundred times, righteousness is also central to you understanding the gospel which saves you and the grace which comforts you, both the comfort and task of the Christian life. So when you think of righteousness, it's going to be in Proverbs 11 a lot. What you think about 
gauges what you take away from it. And so we're going to start by looking at what righteousness is about. And there's two senses we're going to look at. This Hebrew word for righteousness carries both a moral sense or an ethical sense, and it also carries a relational sense in terms of loyalty to something. And so we're going to start first by looking at the moral or ethical aspects of righteousness. This sounds like we're in a philosophy class, but I can promise you this has direct application to our hearts today. And so in Proverbs 11 verse 1, we see that there's this moral code of just just business practices that's actually rooted in God himself. God is the one who is impassioned about this. God is righteous. Leviticus 19, which is where we see the, the time this law is articulated, ends with these business practices that you, dear Israelite businessman, you should have no false scales in terms of weight, measure, or quantity. If we go back to the beginning of Leviticus 19, where God gives these laws on holiness, we see why God is giving this law. Look at Leviticus 19, verses 1 through 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so here we see here that righteousness, that's where we get this law that we're talking about that Proverbs says is righteous, is connected with this idea of God's holiness. And to be holy simply means to be set apart, to be cut off literally and put with something else. It means to be distinct. And what we have to see here is is God says, you need to be set apart because I'm set apart. You are set apart for me because I'm unlike anything else in the world. I'm unlike any of the other gods you've encountered. I'm unlike any of the other pleasures you are seeking for. I am God, be like me, be set apart like me. But what sets God apart? What makes God holy? God's word tells us. Look at Isaiah chapter five, verse 19. Verse 16, it says this, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy. How does God show himself as set apart? Where does God become distinct from anything else we will encounter in this world? In righteousness. God is righteous. He is exalted in justice. Righteousness is not rooted in some sort of changing cultural morality. It is rooted in the God who was and is and is to come. To put this in the most academically stodgy way I can, it is to say with all the California surfers, that wave is righteous, brother. That was a joke because it's silly to say. But what they're saying is this wave that I'm looking at right here is so incredibly perfect, so entirely complete, that there is no wave that could possibly ever come to being like this wave in terms of its quality or character so that the only word I can use to describe this wave is righteous. There is nothing like it. Why is it that all of us in here and in our city have a hair trigger in our hearts for things of justice and righteousness? It's because we are made in the image of a God who is himself righteous. We have a honing beacon in our souls where when the clerk shorts you your buffalo wings for the Super Bowl, And you are upset, you are upset about it precisely because you are made in the image of God who is righteous. We know what purity looks like. We want to understand peace and perfection and justice in this world because Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that even rolling around in the minds of our unbelieving co-workers or neighbors is the reality that there is perhaps something as perfect and as wonderful as the God of the Bible and he might actually exist. That's what all of our longing is showing in us. If God were to give an example of what's actually happening in our hearts when we're talking about justice and righteousness, we are searching for a God who is just and righteous. 
So yes, righteousness does have moral and ethical obligations. It does mean that you act in what is right, in what is true, in what is pure, and in what is just. But when we look at righteousness from a biblical perspective, righteousness is not just a set of rules. Righteousness is understanding the God who rules all things. It is seeing behind whatever the action is to the God who is greater than anything we could ever imagine. And that's why if we want to fully understand righteousness, we have to see the moral and ethical weight of it. But we also have to see the relational aspect of it. This is the second thing we look at in regards to righteousness, the relational aspect of righteousness. This is what Calvin was talking about when he says that we need to have this implanted into our souls. It needs to be poured into our hearts. And so the question you might have is why does God want you to be righteous? Well, Proverbs 11, as we'll go on, we'll see there's plenty of practical reasons you would want to be righteous. But there is a chief reason that we saw all the way back in Leviticus 19. Remember what God said? You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Why does God want us to be righteous and holy? So that he can be righteous and holy. What does that mean? It means God wants his people to be with him. God wants to have a relationship with people. He's inviting us in to share with who he is. But there is a problem here. And that is that because God is so set apart, because God is so holy other, because God is the infinite creator, he is God and we are not. And look at what Psalm 7 says about this. Psalm 7 verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God is righteous, but because of that, he is indignant towards all which is not righteous, towards all which is not just. This is not only what we see in Proverbs 11 verse 1, that God abhors the false scale, but in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. God wants people to come to him in holiness so he can have that relationship, sharing the wonderful nature of who he is, but there is a problem, and that is sin. God created us in his image so that we can enjoy all of the benefits of the righteous God of the beautiful God, of the holy God, of the God who harms no one and seeks peace in all things. And when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, they were meant to mirror this righteousness. They were to go into a world which did not have that relational righteousness and they were to show it everywhere. They were to show how lovely this God is, how pure he is, how caring he is, how loving he is. But they became crooked. They were lied to by the snake, and sin broke their righteousness. It disrupted their ability to reflect righteousness and means that now in Adam, meaning all of us who are here, we are in unrighteousness. We are not morally pure, though we have a desire to be. We are not full of integrity, though we still value integrity. But therefore, there's this huge problem. That is that God is righteous and we are not. We cannot come to him because in his righteous and pure state, his holy indignation, his holy abhorrence of what is broken burns against those who are not like him. And we say, that's intense for God. But in the same way, you are indignant towards those who scam you. God is righteously indignant towards the sinner. See, you might think yourself pretty good. You haven't There's been no intentional extortion of the poor lately in your life. It's good. Keep it up. But what we see here is that to not see God for the true value and beauty that he is. This is where Proverbs 11 is going. To not see God as the value and beauty he is, is to actually scam God of what he is due. Not only is it untrue in this life to find other things that you think are worthy of more praise and worship than God, which is what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Not only is that untrue, it is unjust. It is unrighteous 
It is crooked. It is, as Proverbs 11.2 says, a pride which leads to disgrace. We need God's perfect righteousness to have peace in our world, but our sin separates us from it. And so you have two options. You can try the self-righteousness option, which is to try to do enough righteous things in accordance with God's command in hope that he might ultimately see you working righteously enough and say, aha, at last you have become righteous like me. You've done the work. You've put in the time. Now we can have fellowship. Now you get to enjoy all of the wonderful things about who I am. But the problem of this is twofold. It's exhausting and it's impossible. You can't, by your own works, become righteous. Now we need to understand that. Because you can become more righteous than the person sitting next to you at church. That's an easy thing to do. But you can't become as righteous as God. And that's what's needed. To have fellowship with God is not be more righteous than your brothers and sisters in Christ. To have fellowship with God is to be righteous like God is righteous. To be holy like God is holy. And so to live your life, your understanding of the Christian life, thinking that you can earn your own righteousness, is to burn yourself out pursuing something that will never actually happen. But there's always work to do. There's no rest. But the second option then is instead of relying on your own self-righteousness, it's to actually accept God's own righteousness by grace. This is really important to understand when we read the Bible because we see it today in Proverbs, we've seen it in Proverbs, we see it in the New Testament. The Bible rightly identifies your responsibility to be righteous. If God exists, you have an obligation to him. He is the king, he is the creator, he is the author. We have a responsibility to be righteous because of who God naturally is. And so you see commands in scripture all over the place to pursue righteousness, to walk in righteousness, to live in righteousness, and to love righteousness. But we should ask, where does righteousness start? Where does my path of pursuing, seeking, loving, and living righteousness, where does it begin? Well, Proverbs has already answered this for us. If you remember in Proverbs chapter eight, we're encountering this monologue from Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom points us to Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, Lady Wisdom is a stand-in for God himself. And look at what Lady Wisdom says in verses eight, or 17 through 21. I, that is Lady Wisdom, love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold. My yield, that is what I give, is greater than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness and in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Lady Wisdom has and is righteousness, and she gives as an inheritance to those who love her, those who relationally pursue her. Also, the psalmist in Psalm 24 asks this rhetorical question. He says, who is it that can approach God? He's asking that relational divide. We need righteousness. Who can approach God? And look at how this is answered in verses three through five. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. God provides righteousness to those who come to him. You see, even in the Old Testament, here we are. Historically, before Christ has come, before the gospel has been proclaimed, we see that God is a God who gives righteousness to those who pursue him. And so as God is calling Israel to obey the obligations of walking in accordance to God's law and obeying him, he is also saying that I am the one who's going to make you righteous. I am the one who's going to open the door to this wonderful life. And look at this astounding contrast in Proverbs 11, verse four. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. 
So I have a question for you guys here. This is a question for my own soul. If you were to play the thesaurus game with righteousness, what would be some of the synonyms you would apply to that? What would be, if you had to say, state righteousness in a different sense, what would that different sense be? Here Solomon has given us the different sense. You know what it is? Riches. Profit. Deliverance from death. Righteousness is not this stoic category of right and wrong. Righteousness given by God is the treasure chest of the Christian. We look into this world and we attach our hopes to whatever thing seems to give us riches and profit, be that your own self-righteousness, be that your fantasy football team or your children or your mountaintop Instagram pictures, but here is the one thing that delivers you from death. Here is the riches of God given to you by grace. Here is your righteousness. The means by which God delivers you. And what does Jesus provide us in the gospel? What is all of this pointing to? We'll again turn to 1 Corinthians, or to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where we see this. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us. So what is God becoming to us? The righteousness, or the, to, became to us wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see, Jesus Christ is not a really good man. Jesus Christ, and this is why Trinitarian Christianity is so important. Jesus Christ is God himself, the second person of the Trinity who was incarnate, who lived perfectly. And what does that mean? That means Jesus has the righteousness we need. Jesus is the righteousness of God, not your best righteousness, not our collective best righteousness. He is righteousness par excellence. And Jesus becomes for us by faith righteousness. He gives it to us. Why? Not simply so that we can be declared clean, but so that we can come to the God who is holy. So that we can find his relational, infinite nature wonderful and not be destroyed that we might enjoy him and say, this God is righteous and be satisfied. This is, as Paul says in Romans 3, the righteousness of God which comes by faith. Now, up until this point, we have just described the gospel. That's it. That might not be new to any of you. And you might say, all right, we've read Romans. We know how the righteousness of God works. Jesus takes my sin, I get his righteousness, now I'm saved. But what Proverbs is saying is that very thing you affirm is actually the most practical truth, the most practical comfort in a world which is anxious and nervous. This righteousness is God's gift to you. This righteousness is not a category of systematic theology. This righteousness is a category of the delight of your heart. It is a comfort to be put on daily. And we see this as we transition into the second part of this text. This is where we see what it looks like to trust in righteousness. This is trusting in righteousness. So now, having a biblical understanding of righteousness... We want to look at verses four through eight. And what I want you to look at is how is it the upright, the blameless, and the wise trust in righteousness? That's what I want you to hear, okay? So this is verses four through eight. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight. But, by, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. So here we see these, nothing new in the book of Proverbs. Presented before you are these two paths, the paths of righteousness and the paths 
of wickedness. And daily, you are confronted with the decision of each of these paths. And the reality of life in a broken world is, as Calvin says, the choice and the path of righteousness is naturally foreign to us. In other words, it doesn't come natural to us. In fact, to choose righteousness and to not choose wickedness is to generally choose the path that seems more fearful to us. When it comes to saying no, just think of sin in your own heart. Think of righteousness as choosing to not sin. When you think of that in the confines of your own heart, when you're presented with the sin that besieges you, and we know what is right, why do we fail to do it? Don't we often think that it's because choosing what is right is not as satisfying? That it's promise, not as profound? It's fearful. We choose what we think will assuage our fear. Even more so, think of not what's internal, but external. When you are called to act in a way which accords to the God you worship, not according to the gods of our culture. You might be in a situation at work where your business has become comfortable with a certain level of unjust practices because it pads the bottom line and you know that you conscientiously walking in righteousness will incur the displeasure of your manager. There might be times where walking in righteousness might fearfully place a stress on a relationship. There might be times where walking in righteousness might have the world itself stand against you and what Jesus says to his followers even hate you. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt that kind of anxiety in the cell of your heart or in the culture of your life? But doesn't this passage give us wonderful hope? Don't you see the reality of this text? Remember where this text started? With unjust business practices? The guy at the deli who's putting his finger on the deli counter so he gets a little more cash and you get a little less meat? Why do we need to skew the scales of life when we have a God like this? Why do we need to take up unjust and sinful routes to try to shortchange our own pleasure when God has said, I will reward the righteous? You see, righteousness in Proverbs is a word grounded in hope. And if a God like this provides an answer to a hope like that, doesn't that change how we act? Look at Proverbs 11, verse 7. When the wicked dies, his hope perishes and the expectation of wealth perishes too. You see, all of this is about what we think is able to save us, to satisfy us, and to endure us. The wise learn not to simply trust in the righteous action, because here's the thing. The reason why we don't do the righteous action when we know what it is, the reason why we don't not cheat on our test when we know it's wrong, is because we're recognizing that the actions are limited. Biblical righteousness isn't calling you to trust in the action. Biblical righteousness is calling you to trust in the God behind the action. It's calling you to look at this God who has proved himself faithful in Scripture. Look again at what Calvin says about this. He says, and truly, unless we are devoted, even addicted to righteousness we will faithlessly abandon our creator and disown him as our savior. Behind our ability to live in a way which is righteous, that is to live in a way that mirrors the God who saves us, is ultimately our trust that Jesus' salvation can actually do just that. It is connected to our hope. In other words, in the trials of life, God is calling you to trust in the reward of righteousness given by faith. And here's the truth. You can't trust this righteousness unless you see God's righteousness. 
you can't actually trust that this works out for your deliverance unless you see the inverse of verse eight. Verse eight is this wonderful text for anyone who has been wronged. Verse eight is this wonderful text who look at the millions of babies aborted in our world, who look at the throes of unjust things hurting people. It says that the wicked will be delivered and instead or the righteous will be delivered and instead the wicked will walk into their trouble. There is this wonderful hope where you do not have to worry about vindicating yourself because one day on the day of wrath, those wicked people will get exactly what they have done to everyone else. That is hope. But you know what's a greater hope? Is that Jesus Christ, the one who was in himself only righteous, walked into your trouble instead who took your sinful, wicked, unrighteous sins and bore them in his own body. It is our family's Bible memory verse this week, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus has taken the biggest problem in the world and he solved it by his righteousness. Now this is where Proverbs checks our pride, verse two. Because from a human perspective, we have a tendency, if we've gone to somebody with a great ask and they've forgiven it, we tend to feel prideful and sheepish about asking for smaller things, don't we? If you had a $2 million debt and you go to this debtor and you say, I don't have this, can you please forgive it? And he miraculously says, okay, We're ecstatic. We are so pleased. But then if we go home and we find a $12 parking ticket in our mailbox, how many of us are going back to say, hey, would you pay this? We use that example sometimes thinking that we would, and maybe I'm the only one who's too arrogant to do that, right? I'm like, come on, he just forgave you $2 million. It's $12. Figure it out on your own. But here we see this wonderful truth. This is why the righteousness given to you in Jesus Christ, this hope that God gives us is so much better than anything you could ever encounter on earth because even though Jesus' righteousness is enough to deliver you from the ultimate category of a debt you cannot repay, your unrighteousness, he actually wants you to come and draw again and again from that righteousness in the smallest decisions of daily life. Jesus wants you to not only experience the reward of righteousness on judgment day, he wants you to experience it today. He wants you to find in an anxious and busy world peace that delivers and not false hope which takes captive. Look at what David says in Psalm 34, verses 15 through 18. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. But when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Is that what you want to be addicted to? that in the moment of trial, you might know you stand righteous before God through Jesus Christ, and you might cry out in the smallest, most private moments of your fight with sin when you're standing as if on trial before your manager and say, Lord, hear me. And he is near to the crushed and brokenhearted because he has invited them into his holiness. In Proverbs, we see the world is a dangerous place for a broken soul. On every side, there are false hopes calling you into their living room. There are men seeking to violently harm you. There are schemes seeking to destroy you. And on top of that, there's the constant weight of things we know like physical weakness, disease, relational pain, and turmoil on every side. Don't we know the burdens of life in this world? But David, when he was on the run, when he had foreign kings waging war against him, when his own friends betrayed him, when his sinful choices haunted him and the pain of life visited him, do you know what he took refuge in? It was not his kingdom. It was not even the promise of a future Davidic kingdom. It was not in his army. It was not in his friends. 
We actually get to see what this is. If you could go in the turmoil of your life and go to King David, the man after God's own heart, and say, how did you make it in the trials of your souls? What comfort did you draw? What do you think he would say? Because he actually tells us what he would say. He reflects on the whole scope of his experience and he gives us this in Psalm 37, verses 25 through 29. Listen here. I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. So what do we do with this? Turn away from evil and do good. So you shall dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice and he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Brothers and sisters, to pull you into my devotional life, in a year that has been unlike any other. God in his mercy is striking me with the two by four of what biblical righteousness looks like. That there are few more practical, cherished truths in scripture than understanding that God rewards the righteous that though you are brokenhearted and crushed in the difficult decisions of life, you can choose to follow God and trust that if God is on your side through faith in Jesus Christ, then come what may, I'm gonna be okay. I'm gonna be good. What does it look like to trust in God's righteousness? It looks like living in light of his character, even when it seems costly to your own joy and your own comfort. You know what trusting in righteousness looked like in the Old Testament? It looked like trusting and obeying God when the conditions weren't perfect. It looked like Abraham being moved out of his comfortable life and following a God who called him to a land he couldn't see and a blessing he didn't yet have. It looked like Moses going to the most physically dominating superpower of that day and saying, the God who you can't see says, let my people go. It looked like the people of Israel felling the fortress of Jericho, not with the might of the sword, but with the sound of an obedient footstep and a trumpet. It looked like Gideon getting his armed force of 32,000 pared down to 300 men armed with clearance items from Bed, Bath, and beyond, and yet by the power of God defeating the Midianites. And you know what? In each and every one of those circumstances, every one of those people were human enough to look around and say, this probably isn't the best idea. This seems ridiculous, but what do they do? They look back at the God who is speaking to them and what do they say? He hasn't failed me yet. Obeying a king as good as this king, a God as holy as this holy, invites us not into simply obedience, but invites us into his own comfort. And from there we get to look at this holy God who is now for us in the gospel. Why would we need to tip the scales of life in our favor when we have the favor of God through Jesus Christ? You see, we aren't called to simply look back on the Exodus or the law or the mountain of God or Solomon's temple. We have the privilege of looking back on Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain and rose again. We have seen the fruit of righteousness, a righteousness with death, with death, which death itself couldn't even hold. And Solomon's point here is if you don't trust that righteousness, you will never have God's wisdom. If we don't believe righteousness to be a comfort and hope to us in Jesus Christ, then we will always be the fool. I've noticed something significant about those who have been involved in significant car crashes. Um, people I've talked to, stories you hear, and if they make it out of that car crash alive, the majority of those people are convinced they will never buy another brand of car than the car they were in. Because in the crucible of life's most catastrophic moments, they found that it really delivered them. Brothers and sisters, this life is destined for impact with sin 
with the day of wrath and with judgment. But here in the gospel, we have been given a righteousness which we can trust. And we can say, may I never stand apart from it. May I in the deepest moments of doubt and in the most pressure to disobey, choose what has always delivered and trust the God who is good. Why would we choose to act integrity in our business? Because we trust in the pleasure of God over the profit of men. Why would we say no to sin? Because we realize the righteous walk freely and are not taken captive. Why would we choose to make difficult decisions in life to pursue discipleship, to repent of sins, to live our lives on mission, to be sent to other nations, to love others, to take stands for Christ and to worship the Lord without ceasing because this righteousness is better than life. And in humbly accepting that and seeing that in Jesus, we become wise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that righteousness is not a foreign category to our lives. That righteousness is not first an action, but it is a relationship with the God who became righteous for the unrighteous, who stands to show that he has taken care of us in Christ and he will take care of his saints in Christ forevermore. Lord, I pray the application of this text is in our body twofold. One, that we would take deep, deep, deep comfort from the deliverance we have in Jesus Christ. And two, Lord, that we would fearlessly and boldly choose to make righteous decisions even when the wicked path has made itself clear. We pray that our church is different because you are different. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.